success to me is being able to do what I want to do when I want to do it and also being able to help other people knowing that I can help the next person achieve their dreams because I've been successful. Welcome to the Idea Generation Podcast, a show about creative entrepreneurship. My name is Noah Callahan Bever, and each week I'll be speaking with some of the most innovative ideators in culture and trying to figure out how they make their creative decisions. This podcast is brought to you by the good people at Shopify. Feeling that entrepreneurial itch? Turn your passion into a business with Shopify. They've got everything you need to start, run, or grow your business. Check out shopify.com slash idea to learn more. In 1996, a college student at Wesleyan University had an idea. Angela Yee had always been drawn to music and media, and when she landed an internship at MTV, she was able to merge the two passions. However, this was long before she would go on to become one of the biggest names in radio. So, just a recent college graduate, Yee would land her first job as an assistant for Wu-Tang Clan's Divine. My mom has had the same job since I was like eight years old. So she works for New York City Transit Authority. And then my dad, not so much. My dad has bounced around a lot. He worked for AT&T. He worked for Lucent Technology. Then he was working at like random places. Now he manages my uncle's dentist's office. And so I think my mom has always been the very stable, you know, going up the ranks in her job nine to five person, really responsible. My mom is like the type of person who is not gonna take off from work for no reason. And she'll get up super early, get on the train, go to work, be the first person there. And then she also works to Eileen Fisher. And so she does that on the weekend cause she loves their clothes. And so she's a really hard worker. I think when it comes to that, sorry dad, but I'm probably more like my mom. She works all the time. And so I think I take after her in that respect. And she also, when she goes to work, she really doesn't ever complain about anything. She's just really good at, you know, making it happen. Where did your interest in media come from? I always wanted to be a writer from when I was younger. And so I did a lot of creative writing and then I got interested in journalism. And when I first started doing things in the music business, I used to write bios for people. And so I wrote a few bios and then I did some stories. I did a Machine Gun Kelly story for YRB. I did a cover story for Vibe for MMG. And so that's kind of where it started with me doing some writing. You grew up in Brooklyn and went to Poly and then to Wesleyan. I'm curious, you know, those are two very elite institutions. What do you feel like was the most important thing that you gained from those experiences? I would say going to Poly actually helped me a lot with playing sports. That was a big deal for me because Poly Prep makes you play sports. It's a beautiful campus. And before that, you know, living in Brooklyn, there's not a lot of spaces where you're running around and doing things like that. And so before that, we had, I remember, you know, growing up and being at, I went to PS235, we had like a little concrete playground. So it was just jump rope, double dutch. The guys are playing handball, you know, maybe a little bit of tag and things like that. And so I think for Polly, just being more physical and I, I played field hockey, I ran track. Um, I did the long jump, the triple jump, the high jump. I also played basketball and I don't think I would have done those things. So it did help me as far as athleticism and sportsmanship, which I think is important. Also having a lot more freedom. 
because going to public school, and I did go back to public school for two years before I graduated from Pali, going to public school is a lot more um, rigid and you don't have the freedom that you would have. And so Pali, I was, you know, taking all these different courses that I would have never been able to take like elective courses if I was in public school. And so I think having smaller classes helped too. You know, in public school, it might be like 30 kids in your class. But being at Pali, I had classes that were only 12 kids. And so I feel like that student to teacher relationship is really important, having that one-on-one -on -one attention. And then Wesleyan, same thing, the classes are small. And the thing about Wesleyan that I liked that made me really wanna go there was there was no core curriculum. And so I didn't have to take all these classes that I wasn't interested in. And so I was taking Shakespeare and screenwriting and playwriting and music of the Caribbean and all these courses that I wanted to take instead of having to take classes that were mandatory. And so I feel like I was able to really hone in on my creative skills. I took photography, I was developing my own pictures. So when did your attention start moving towards the entertainment industry? I think when I was in college at Wesleyan, we had a career resource center. And so we had an opportunity to get internships with people who were alumni from Wesleyan. And so I remember looking at these internships and not really knowing what I wanted to do. And so the first thing I did was I interned at TVT Records. And these are all unpaid internships too. So there was no per diem, nothing. And then I did an internship at MTV. And that was through my best friend, Santi, um, Santi Gold. She was really good friends with um, this guy, Fred Jordan, and he was a music manager at MTV. And so I went and she was like, Fred wants you to intern for him. And so I went and interned for Fred. And that was really eye-opening for me. People loved him because he was the person that presented the videos every week that they might add to MTV. So everybody wanted to be cool with him in the music business because if you wanted to get your music video on MTV, you knew you had to go through Fred. We went to daddy's house one time to see the Biggie hypnotized video for the first time. And he brought me with him, you know, to things like that. And so I thought it was really cool. And I also randomly knew a lot of people growing up. Like I went to high school with Lauren Hill. And when I went to school in Jersey for those two years, we were in all the same classes. So I was kind of around it a lot, I feel like. And um, it just felt like a natural thing. And then I ended up getting an internship for Wu-Tang when I was in college and that was through my friend Scotty. And so doing that internship, I wasn't sure I wanted to do it cause I thought Wu-Tang was so wild cause of the reputation that they had. And I had to go to Staten Island every day. And I was assistant to the CEO and Divine had a lot of different business. I mean, it was Wu-Tang management, it was Wu-Wear, it was Wu-Tang Corporation, Wu-Tang Publishing, and then the guys were on all these different labels. And so basically I handled payroll, anything that Divine needed, I was the person that was like the conduit. So I always let him know what was going on in the office, but then also maybe the president of Epic needed to talk to him, or maybe Steve Rifkin at Loud Records needed to set up a meeting or had some questions. It was basically any and everything. And so everything that was happening, it was like, Divine would be like, just go to Angela. I had really built up, I felt like that trust with him where he knew that I wasn't gonna drop the ball on anything and I was really reliable. It got to the point where I was like, this is too much, but it was like every little thing. And it was great because I was able to meet so many different people at different labels. I mean, it was Def Jam, it was Elektra, it was MCA, it was Loud Records. They had the Wu-Tang um, deal at Priority for Wu-Tang Records. Yeah, they had Epic. You know, it was all the different labels. And so me being in the middle of all that meant that I was communicating with everyone. Did you have a sense at that point where you wanted to take your career? 
I had no idea what I was doing. And at the same time, while I was there, I was writing bios for other people too. And so I was getting like my little side hustle money. I remember I did Buckshots when he was BDI Thug. I did his bio. <laughs> you know, it was fun. Like I actually enjoyed doing that. So after I left Wu-Tang, I actually left um, and had a brief fling of a job. Um, I worked at Virgin Records for Chiba Sounds. Okay. So it was a little label that D'Angelo was signed to. It was like a horrific experience, but um, I went there. It was actually Fred Jordan that was really good friends with the guy who owned the label. And he was like, look, Angela, you know, you need to do some classy things and this would be a good opportunity for you. And it, it was one of my biggest regrets. I mean, they offered me more money, but you know, the only artist they had at that time was D'Angelo. They were booking Electric Lady Studios for him to work and he was just not showing up. They had all these, um, all this equipment, all these musicians. They were just paying all this money and they didn't really have a good communication with D'Angelo. So he was doing whatever he wanted. They wouldn't even let him hear the music. And so there wasn't anything for me to do if your you know, main artist is not trying to even communicate with you. So it was just not a good experience. So after that, I left and I went to a marketing company called Avenue B Marketing. And so this is where I started learning how to write marketing, like for me to get clients, pitches for clients. And so I would be the person that would write up a proposal to try to get a marketing client and come up with ideas. And so that was fun. And at that time we got Heineken, we had um, this clothing line called Varsity. We had Willie Esco, we had Sprint PCS, we did Averex, like we did different campaigns. The New York Liberty. So I went to Liberty Games back then. It was a, a few different clients that, that they had, and I was the one responsible for writing that. And then I just remember, though, at the time, my boss kept telling me, I'll have more money for you. And I would see, like, what the checks were coming in, and I'm like, why is this not translating? You know, because I was the person that had to do everything. Like, I would have to go to the clubs, go to the games, write the proposal. I was really very hands-on in doing everything. And so we had gotten to a point where I told them, I said, look, if you're not gonna pay me more money, then I need to have some freedom to do other things. And that's actually what led to me becoming more of a consultant than working in-house anywhere. And so I started working with Nile Rogers. He owned a distribution label and he had bought it from Prince. And so he was, I think, the only black man that owned a distribution label at that time. And so he was distributing like Deborah Gibson, AKA Debbie Gibson, um, David Lee Roth solo album, but he was also doing a lot of scoring for video games. And so he made a lot of money doing that. You know, Nile is just an incredible artist and an incredible talent. And so at the marketing company, my boss got upset that I was doing other things after he agreed to allowing me to do it. And so I remember one day I came in and he yelled at me and I was like horrified because I don't really take well to people speaking to me that way. I just took my laptop because they didn't even give us laptops. I took my laptop, packed it up and left. And then I just never came back. And Niall had been trying to get me to come work with him. And so when that happened, the first thing I did was call Niall and be like, hey, I'm you know available, but I just want to consult. And so he gave me an office space in their office and I only had to come in once a week, but I had the office to use whenever I needed to. And so that was my first client. And then a couple of clients that they had at the marketing company called me after I quit and became my clients instead. And so I actually ended up making way more money when I left and started working on my own. That I was getting it was I was getting paid every month. And so I was making people pay me for the month up front. So I was never waiting for a check and everybody was pretty on point with it. And so I really had like four different clients that were paying me every month. 
And I was making six figures back then just because I had these different clients. It was exciting and I had so much more freedom. I didn't have to be anywhere. And so I was able to move around also because, you know, I didn't have to be in any particular office. I just was doing things. You know, I wasn't thinking too hard about it. I wasn't even thinking about the future. I was just happy. I was happy to be traveling. I was happy to have money. You know, I was happy to have a lot of freedom to be able to do what I wanted to do. If I wanted to sleep until noon, I could sleep until noon and then get up and do what I had to do. And even just the things I was doing, it was fun. I used to also promote parties and put them together. And so part of what I was doing when I was freelancing was I would put together events. And even when I worked at the marketing company, working with Heineken, we did these different events. We put out like a series of mixtapes. And so I was in charge of that out like, you know, to the tunnel, to the palladium, to the limelight, to Grant's tomb. Every day was like something going on. And so, and it would be the same security. They all knew me. So whenever I would show up, they'd be like, oh, Angela's here. Come on, girl, how you doing? I was always, you know, going out. And so a lot of people knew me just from that. And then I was also putting together these events at times too. And so I started DJing a little bit and that was really fun for me. And I remember early on, Pete Rock gave me records. Special K and Teddy Tay gave me some records. Um, who else? I think DJ Absolute gave me some records. It was a bunch of different people that were like, oh, you know, let me hook you up. And so everybody was so supportive of me doing that. How do you then end up meeting Paul Rosenberg and starting the next phase of your career? Uh, oh my gosh. So when I was in college, I dated this guy and his brother was like down with Eminem. He was a, his brother was a rapper. This is when I worked for Wu-Tang. And so I had went to Lyris' lounge and seen Eminem perform and battle. And I was like, he's amazing. And so we were doing this Park Hill Day. It was an event that Wu-Tang did in Staten Island, like a give back to the community. And it was like a big deal for him back then. But I was like, yo, he's really dope. So I'm going to get him. And I remember when he came and he um, performed, I remember Divine being like, yo, that kid is really dope. I was like, y'all should sign him, you know, because at that time Eminem wasn't signed. And I know Mathematics always says uh, that Eminem gave him his um, demo, but he never, I don't think he even listened to it, you know, at that time. But that was kind of early on with how the relationship started and how okay. I met Paul. And so then my friend Tracy, who I knew before she went to go work for Shady. And so she went to go work for Shady. So it just strengthened like my relationship with Paul because now my friend is working there. And so I used to send clothes um, for Eminem all the time, just super early on. And that's really how Paul and I established a relationship. And then he would do things and I would always show up to support him and what it was that he was doing. With a few years under her belt operating as a music industry Swiss Army knife, Yi focused her pursuits and honed in on a career path. Thanks to an unexpected audition at Shade 4-5, courtesy of Eminem manager Paul Rosenberg, Yi was able to secure a coveted position on the station's morning show, finding not only her voice, but a national audience as well. I was with Jizza at the uh, Chappelle show premiere, the first ever episode, and Jizza's on that first episode. He was the musical guest. And so that happened because Corey Smith actually called me and he was like, oh, we're doing this show. And I was like, Dave Chappelle's hilarious. I had seen Half Baked. And um, I was like, I told Jizza, I was like, you need to do this. And so we booked him to go in. If you see the episode, I'm like sitting next to Dave um, in the booth, like while Jizza's performing. 
So that was the first ever episode and Jizza was the guest. And so we were at the premiere of it and Paul was sitting um, either right in front of me or right behind me at the premiere. And so he goes, oh, Angela, by the way, we're starting a clothing line. And so I would love for you to come and work with us. And he was like, call me tomorrow. And I was like, okay. And then I called him the next day and that was it. You start working for them, doing some freelance marketing. How does that turn into an opportunity to be the voice of Shade 4-5? So I started working there as a freelancer, and then they actually asked me to come work full-time in-house. So I called Paul, and I was like, look, they want this. He was like, if that's what you want to do, you know, that's cool for us, too. And so I ended up working there, and then it didn't work out. So I got laid off. They call it laid off. And so after that, I took a little bit of time because I feel like I've been working ever since I was in college, you know, nonstop internships and then all these different jobs. So I took a little bit of time. And then one day I called Paul and I said, Paul, you know, I see this opening for marketing. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And so I thought working at Satellite Radio and the marketing department could have been fun for me just because I had this marketing background too. It's what I've been doing. And so he ended up telling me, Angela, you know, if you went, we're looking for a, a co-host on the morning show with Cypher Sounds. Would you be interested in auditioning? He said, I can't guarantee you the job. That's not all up to me if Sirius decides to hire you, but I can get you in to audition. And I was like, sure, why not? And that's how it happened. You get invited in for an audition, but you've never done anything public facing or before that. Did you prepare or was there any sort of process to, to get ready for that? It was so disorganized. They didn't even tell me what to, they did. First of all, the show started at eight. So they told me to get there at seven. I got there at seven, no one was there. <laughs> no one showed up until like eight. And so I was just like, oh my God, what's going on? I don't know where to go, what to do. I was just like standing around for an hour. No one gave me any instructions. So we get in and I don't, they like give me some papers and they're like, here, do the news. I didn't even know how to do that. And so I was just really nervous. And then they were making fun of me because I was nervous. And then people calling live, they were like, this girl sucks, who is she? Get her out of here. It was awful for me at first. And I remember people saying like, how did she get that job? People were really upset and I didn't have the job. I really was just auditioning. And I remember people being like, who did she sleep with to get that? It was really bad for me at first, but they would give me a CD of the show every day. And so I would take it home and listen to it every day and listen to myself and say, okay, this is what you need to improve on. And during that time, like I didn't go out or didn't do anything because I was so focused on trying to just do this job and get better at it. And so I did get better. And I remember the same person that called in the first day and said that I sucked, he called in and was like, actually, I kind of like you now. I know I called and said that you sucked before, but I, and I remember feeling like, wow, okay. So, you know, it's, it's probably gonna happen. And then we did this interview with Jay-Z when he became president of Def Jam. And that interview, I walked out and they were like, that's it, you're hired. Part of it was I did have good relationships with people. A lot of people I knew before beforehand just from having worked in marketing and having been around and being from Brooklyn. And so I think that that translated over the radio. It translated in the conversations that we could sit down and have. And it was unique for them. And so... I remember Cypher in that interview just being like, I'm just going to sit back and let Angela, this is the Angela Yee show now, I'm just going to let Angela, go ahead, Angela, because we were having just a funny rapport and a funny back and forth. And so after that, and I mean, it's Jay-Z, it wasn't anything bigger than that, that you could shine on an interview during that time. What do you think were the things that you grew the most at during that period? I think the news, just because before that, I really didn't 
like pay attention to the news like that. And so it forced me to have to do that. So you were curating and editing and deciding what was going to be there and then writing your own scripts and all that kind of stuff? Right. Absolutely. And then coming up with segments. Okay. You know, and that's when I started the Don't Quit Your Day Job. That was a really popular segment for unsigned artists to be able to get their music heard. So that was a really fun one. And then I started this segment. It was called Slut It Out back then. That turned into lip service. That that might not have flown in 2022, but... <laughs> but the point of it was... Um, it was called Slut It Out, but it was funny. It was supposed to be ironic, you know, but the whole point of it was to show when I developed it, it was a every it was a once a week thing. So we would film it at night and I would have different women come in and we would do like an hour and then we would break it up for the whole month. So okay. it would come on once a week, but everyone loved it. It turned it was so popular. That's how I ended up getting lip service. They actually told me they wanted me to take that and turn it into a real show. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's how it happened. But the point of Slut It Out was, and I did a Slut It Out mixtape and everything. You probably could Google it and find it. Me and DJ Wonder did this whole Slut It Out mixtape. And it was really funny. But the point was to show that women have sex and talk about it and let people eavesdrop on the conversations that we have. And so it was, it could be a woman who was, I remember we had a lawyer on and we had a receptionist on and we had, I think we had a doctor on once. But it would just be different women in different fields just to show the commonality is no matter what, like women are having sex, but we didn't really have a space to discuss those things and have real conversations. And for the guys, we had a lot of guy listeners on Shade 45. It was a hip hop station. And so it was really educational for them to hear what women think and what we talk about. And then that turned into me wanting to have women who were like the video vixens that you get to see them, but you don't get to hear them. And so I wanted them to show their personalities. And so, I mean, back then we had Amber Rose on. Really? Yeah. And when she started dating Kanye, all these different networks and like different magazines were hitting me up like, hey, do you mind if we use this, you know, video? So even back then, yeah. I, it was like Delicia Bryant. And it was all like the big uh, women who guys were lusting after in the magazines. That when Bernice Burgos was on back then, that's how I knew her. And okay. Sasha Del Valle, all those women. Once you've now gotten yourself established at Shade 4-5 and you're co-hosting The Morning, did you have a sense at that point of the scope of your career ambitions? I then knew that radio was what I wanted to do and that type of media. I enjoyed it. Back then, it wasn't so visual. I remember we had Ustream. And so sometimes I would get on Ustream when we were doing interviews so people could kind of see a behind the scenes. But I mean, I would literally be in there, you know, no makeup, hair not done in my pajamas, like not caring what you look like at all. Now it's so different and it matters a lot. Back then, the visuals weren't so important. I remember early on, like doing my own videos and then sending it to World Star Hip Hop, you know, to Q so he could like put it on World Star. And sometimes they would just pick it up on their own, but I would send it to them because that's how people really knew about the show. And then Sirius got mad and they put this whole mandate out that you were not allowed to videotape any content because they felt like I was giving away free content. And I always looked at it like, this is gonna make people want to sign up if we put out these little videos of different things. It's not like the whole show. It might make people feel like I wanna get serious. I wanna hear everything that's going on. So it turned into this whole thing where they said the whole company wasn't allowed to do it, but it was really because of me. It was such a different time without social media and not having a car and not having Sirius. I had no access to Shade 4-5, but through friends, I would get excerpts from the certain interviews so I could get a sense that what you're doing was really moving the needle and, and making noise. But it, 
you know, so different from how it is now where it's like, you know, you do an interview and now it's all on video and it's on the YouTube and everyone's arguing about it 45 minutes later. Yeah, it's completely accessible. I mean, it's on Instagram, it's on everything. Like even award shows or anything on television, you don't have to watch it. Cause you're like, I could just see it on, you know, when they post it right after or right while it's happening. And so I feel like there's not that feeling you have to instantaneously, you know, where you have to see something while it's happening because you can just be like, oh, I'll see it when it comes online a few minutes later. He was building momentum on air with new original segments and clever use of internet virality to promote her show online through social media. At the same time, she encountered a young photographer by the name of Jay Electronica and began managing his burgeoning music career. You're co-hosting the show with Cypher, but at a certain point, he leaves and goes to Hot to do the morning show there. What position does that put you in? So Cypher always knew he wanted to leave and go do the Hot 97 morning show. And I think it's something he was very clear with them on. You know, he knew at some point they were going to ask him to do it. And then he was doing a show before the morning show. They had Big Boy on. And then he had a show that was like for two hours before that. And I think they were grooming them to be able to do that show. But he also knew he wanted me to come with him. So in his vision, I would be coming with him and leaving. But they really wanted me to stay as serious. And so when Cypher left, they did offer me the morning show. And so, you know, I had the opportunity to go with Cypher, but it felt like having your own show with your name on it was more powerful than being like, you know, the sidekick whose name wasn't on the show on a station. And so I opted to stay and start my own morning show. And it was the best decision that I could have made because it really helped me learn how to produce a show I really worked hard on it, and it ended up being really popular at that time. I think, you know, obviously, as a consumer, all that we see is kind of the hosts show up, they do great interviews, and they guide us through, you know, a few hours. What are the responsibilities and what's the all the prep work that goes into running your own show and where you have to drive the whole thing? So it really was me. I still do my own research all the time. And so, you know, coming up with the stories that you want to talk about, making sure that it's researched so that you know what you're talking about. Even when you book a guest, making sure that you research that guest so you ask important questions and you know what's going on in their life at that time. Um, Staying after the show so that you can meet with your whole entire crew so you guys can discuss, like, what's happening tomorrow, what else is happening this week, what could we have done better, and just making sure that you guys are always in communication. And then, you know, even when I'm at home, I'm always thinking about what am I doing tomorrow on the show. And also coming up with ideas because you never want the show to get still where you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. Every day should feel different. You know, you might have segments, but maybe you're thinking about, okay, what are we going to do for this segment? When I had the Don't Quit Your Day Job, it was listening to music and figuring out who are we going to use for the segment this week. And so, you know, I had so many different things. We had like a whole new music segment. And so that meant like kind of going through things. I would listen to everything to hear it. So it was a lot. I mean, the show was four hours, but I probably worked, you know, definitely at least eight hours. Oh, wow. I think people do think it's an easy job. They think you can just get up there and talk and like the mic comes on, you walk in, turn on the mic and just start talking. And it's definitely not like that. But they should feel like that. People should feel like, oh, anyone can do this. And I think you're really great at your job if people feel like anyone can do it because it shouldn't sound difficult. It shouldn't be like, I could tell she had to do all this. You should feel like it's just smooth and natural and easy. That means you're so prepared that you're just flowing. 
And so I think the best people at that job, you know, like when Wendy Williams is on the air, it, she could talk about anything and you could feel like, oh, she's just talking like she's talking to her friends. But that's a real skill for somebody to be able to have. That's a rhythm of there can't be dead air and silence and quiet. And how can I make things that it depends on how you say it for something to sound interesting when someone's telling a story. So during this time, while you're on Shade 4-5, you also sort of take a step back into the management role mm -hmm. and start managing Jay Electronica. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that experience? I first met Jay Electronica at a photo shoot. So it was for this brand called Greedy Genius. So my boy Joseph I and Mikhail, they were uh, doing a photo shoot for this brand. And so they asked me to, to come in and shoot for it. And Jay Electronica was a photographer. Are you serious? <laughs> Yes, I mean his guy Ringo. So they were the photographers. And that was my first time meeting him. I didn't even know he did music. And so I'm there, you know, they're taking the pictures and everything. And so this is when he was living in Brooklyn with Erica, Abadu. And so when I was leaving, you know, they were like, oh, can you drop us off in Brooklyn? I was like, no problem. So they rode to Brooklyn with me. And this is when AIM was also big, um, AOLIM. <laughs> And so Ringo would always like send me Jay's music, like, oh, you know, Jay does music. We would love to get him on Don't Quit Your Day Job because that was the thing. Like it was so popular back then. And so I was like, yeah, please let me know when you guys are ready. I would love to have him on or whatever. And so then I remember seeing him on the cover of a magazine. Him and Erica were on the cover of a magazine. I was like, oh, my God, that's, you know, Jay Electronica. And then at one point, Jay was moving. Um, he had moved and then he was moving back to Brooklyn. And that's when he contacted me and he was like, look, I need to find a place. I'm moving back to Brooklyn, but I want to put together a management team and I want you on the team. And so it was four of us that he wanted to manage him as a collective. And I was like, look, I don't know if I'm going to do management anymore, but I'll help out. But at the end of it, you know, after a little while, it was really just me. And so I was like, Jay, I'll help you find a manager. And in the meantime, I'll help you until you find one. But I definitely was the person that was like going on the road. You know, I'm the one that was like, it's Julie Greenwald's birthday. Come to this party. Jay-Z is here and you should meet him. I think he'll love your music. And, you know, he came to the party and met Jay-Z and that's how he ended up. Really? Yeah. And he sent um, Jay-Z a song that he did. And the next day, Jay-Z sent it back with his verse on it, like the very next day. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. What is, in your estimation, the key to being a successful manager? I think that you have to be honest because you want your client to trust you. And so if you ever lie about anything, if you ever are funny about the money, you have to be really transparent. Because once there's one thing that you do that's not transparent and honest, they'll never trust you again. And so one thing about me is that it's never been about the money for me. Even with Jay Electronica, he'll tell you like, Angela doesn't care about that. I'll give you all your money and you know we'll figure it out later. That's fine. And um, so that's one of the main things I would say. You ha They have to trust you. And then I think it's also to not be annoying. I let Jay know that if he doesn't want to do something or he knows he's not going to do it, just tell me. I told him that. I was like, just let me know and we'll work it out together. And I'll make sure that you don't look bad. But you can't just not answer my calls. Just let me know. I'm not going to bother you about it. And, you know, once I get him to, like, he might be like, I'll go do the show, but I don't want to do any interviews. I know once we get there, he'll do it. 
You know, so I'm not going to even have a conversation with you about it and bother you about it. I just wait till we get there and be like, you know that um, you should do this. And then it's his decision from there. But I know how he is, too. Like, I know once we get there, he'll be fine and good to go. And I think the main thing is for people to know that it's a team thing. Like, I'm always on your side, you know, even though you might do whatever. I'm here to make you feel more comfortable. And so that the things that you can concentrate on your artistry while I concentrate on the business of it and making sure that you look as good as possible. And if there's anything that makes you uncomfortable, let's fix it. Okay. So he ends up signing with Rock Nation. That's when you sort of extricated yourself from. Yeah. So he starts working with Rock Nation, but I still work with Jay. Like, you know, yeah, there's still things that I do with him. Like, you know, he had to go do something in LA and he'll be like, Angela, can you, if it's something important, I'll definitely always go. If he's like, Angela, I need you to do this. But if it's like things like, you know, he's working on music and, He's here. I don't need to be there for that. But when it's other things, you know, if he's doing a video, if he's doing something, I'll make sure that I'm there because I know it does make him more comfortable when I'm there. As Yee's tenure with Sirius came to a close, a new opportunity was just around the corner. Yee was approached to be a part of a new morning show called The Breakfast Club, and the success she would enjoy there was beyond anything she had ever imagined. Have you ever had a big idea but lacked the tools to implement it? Look no further than Shopify. Shopify is the brand that powers all your favorite clothing, beauty, and sneaker brands and offers the best-in-class commerce tools to allow you to sell online, in person, and on all major social platforms. Shopify fuels millions of entrepreneurs and turns ambition into action. Check out shopify.com idea to learn more. Now back to the story. You're working at Shade 4-5, you're running your own show for several successful years, and then you end up getting the opportunity to take your talents to South Beach, aka to iHeart. How does that opportunity come to you, and how did you think about making that decision? So I had been working at Sirius, um, I worked there for six years before I left. And towards the end, you know, I was having some issues with upper management and not feeling like appreciated. I think at that time, and I did, I said this to them, we have an exit interview when you leave. So in my exit interview, I told them, I was like, I think that Sirius does not um, support hip hop and R&B the way that they should. And I I was like, look, the number one and number two albums is Nicki Minaj, and I think it was Kanye. And I was like, and you guys aren't even investing into that. Instead, you guys are doing like a Swedish rock festival, you know? And so, I already knew I wanted to leave. I just didn't know what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go. They tried to hire me in Philly to do the morning show. And then um, Atlanta also. They wanted me to come to Atlanta to work. And I'm appreciative for that because to me, it made me feel more confident that, okay, people are outside of here are appreciating what it is that I do. Because these were people who didn't even know me that were reaching out. I got one on Facebook where the program director reached out to me and was like, we want you to come here. They were like, we're going to rename the whole station after you, like 99 point ye. <laughs> I mean, they were like, you could live in New York. What's in a car service for you every day to come back and forth to Philly? They wanted me so badly. And that was such a great feeling. And then I remember in Atlanta, they made an offer. And, you know, this is so dope to me. I saw Frank Ski the other day and he was like, you know, I really wanted you to come here. And that, I mean, that's Frank Ski. So imagine somebody as legendary as that that wanted you to come and work with them. I was leaving the meeting from talking to um, the program director from Philly. Mm -hmm. 
And I was walking to my car and that's when New York called me. And that's when um, Clear Channel, Power 105, they called me and they were like, hey, you know, we really wanted to talk to you about coming to work here. And prior to that, I was supposed to work part-time at Power 105. I was supposed to do fill-ins and weekends. And Sirius said no. And I remember just being devastated, but also feeling really upset about the fact that there were so many DJs and personalities there that worked at other stations. I was like, so you guys are telling me no, but everybody else can do it. It just didn't feel fair to me. And in a way, I kind of felt like I should have just did it and not even asked. And you know, because at that point, what can you do? But I had already been going in and doing the training to learn how to run my own boards so I could fill in. And I just was, I told G-Spin, I said, look, because G-Spin was the first person that wanted to bring me over there at the time. And I told him, I was like, look, Sirius won't let me and I can't give up my full-time job for a fill-in gig, but if something else comes up, I'm ready to leave, so let me know. And so I guess that kind of put the wheels in motion when they were trying to develop this new morning show and radio moves slow. You know, even me now in my situation, it took a long time from when you had these initial conversations for it to happen. And so when I was leaving the meeting at Philly, they told me, Angela, you know, they called me from New York and they said, we're trying to do a show with you. And they wouldn't tell you me what it was. They didn't tell me mornings, but they just said, are you interested? I said, absolutely. And then I had to wait for months <laughs> to hear back. But at that time, I also had to turn down the opportunity in Philly and pray that the New York one would come through. So you end up having the conversation with Clear Channel and they proposed the morning show to you? They didn't propose that for a while. They just told me they wanted me to come there potentially. But in the, I couldn't sign a contract somewhere else because if they called me and they were like, we want you, I couldn't be in, under contract in Philly. And so I had to turn that down. Okay. And then they did come back and offer me more money and everything after I turned it down. You know, and then we ended up having a meeting at this Indian restaurant that I love, Tamarind. So we went there and that's when they told us it was a morning show, me, um, Envy and Charlemagne. I was excited because I was ready to leave. And then I didn't also have to move out of New York because I was to the point where in Philly, I was looking for apartments in Philly. Oh, really? Yeah, I was looking like, okay, I might be moving to Philly. And so let me start figuring out where I want to live, you know? <laughs> and I, I got, I've always lived in New York. So that's why it also was kind of exciting to me to think about moving because I've never lived anywhere else. And so I was like, okay, this could be fun. But then when I had the chance to stay in New York, I said, yes, I don't have to leave here. That's amazing. And did you have a sense of who Envy and Charlemagne were when they proposed them? Yeah, I knew both of them already. So Envy and I both worked at Sirius. So I knew him from working at Sirius. And then Charlemagne, he had actually um, co-hosted with me on Sirius a couple of times after I got my own show. Oh, okay. So how did you have to sort of change your strategy to I guess your on-air personality and fitting into now being part of a trio as opposed to driving. So, well, part of it that was difficult was also transitioning from Sirius to FM radio. They were a little nervous that I wouldn't be able to do that because, you know, Sirius, I was very like potty mouth, they would say. Oh, yes. But I would say anything. I mean, we, you know, we could do whatever up there. And so they were like, can Angela be PG enough to be on FM radio? So they were concerned about that. And then, you know, I, I don't have a problem being part of a team. And I think a lot of things that we developed early on, you know, I was like, look, I loved when I did this as Sirius. And I feel like I probably, with the segments and everything, had a lot of experience because Sirius is a lot more talk than anything else I've ever done. You could have your talk break for as long as you want it to be, you know? So 
I think for me, like my main thing was let's develop these segments. I also knew that I really wanted a video person because that's what helped me a lot is having a lot of stuff that, you know, I had like a little janky camera and I had to have like the nightlight on. It looked crazy. Um, but it was so important to have those visuals. And so that was another thing that I knew that we had to do. But it wasn't hard for me at first because, you know, I had came from being under Cypher Sounds too, where he was the main host of the show and I was really the support of it. And so, like I said, I think when I was younger, I was always a team player. And so I always know that if, you know, the team wins, we all win. That's how I looked at it. So I'm more of the mediator and maybe the one that has like the, the research done where I'm going to be like, okay, so you're doing this. This is the reason why you're here. Um, Charlamagne might be more of the um, antagonist where he's going to say or do something that might catch you off guard. But I feel like that's changed from when we first started. And then I would say for MV might be the person as the DJ that has a professional relationship, you know, where he's seen people a lot out and about because that's his job. And so people know him for so long from his mixtapes back in the day and from him being out a lot. Obviously, New York radio is incredibly competitive on the FM dial and Hot and, and Power have had, you know, famous wars of words between the jocks <laughs> for 20 years mm-hmm. at this point. I guess, when did you have a sense that it was really starting to gel and starting to work? It took a while because... It's hard to find that rhythm at first, especially when you all haven't been working together. And so I think we always could see the potential, but it had to improve and get better. And it took a little bit for it to catch on. I think people were so used and programmed to listening to Hot 97 that they even thought we were on Hot 97, you know, for a while. They're like, yeah, the Breakfast Club on Hot 97. You know, people would still be like, Angela, yeah, Hot 97, like to this day, because they're just used to it. You know, that was like the template for everything as far as in music people be like hot 97 you know so I think people were so accustomed to that it was like changing somebody's habits and that takes some time and that could take years you know for that to happen but I think like I said the videos and things that we did online is what really started to program people to listen to us I think one of the biggest things we had early on was that Ray J moment you know, mm-hmm. yeah, with the indoor pool, indoor, the outdoor, outdoor pool. pool yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, something like that, like can change the whole trajectory of people being like, wait, what was this on? Like, I got to make sure I listen to this. In media, I've, I've always felt like there's a certain latency between when you get the product to the right place and when the audience actually acknowledges that yeah. the product's in the right place. And I guess, what would you say that window was like for you guys? I would say it probably took two years. Okay. And that's a lot of patience, especially for, you know, your programmers and everybody to give you that time to grow because it is going to take about two years, you know, for people to know that you're there, to get into the habit of listening to you, to get familiar with you, to know your names, to know you're in the market. And then we ended up getting the syndicated weekend show. And that really helped us, too, to not just be in New York, yep. but to be in all of these different cities. And then that weekend show is what got people accustomed to us to be able to get syndicated during the week also. The Breakfast Club turned Angela Yee into a household name, but success on the radio was never her only goal. Yee wanted to be a true entrepreneur. So in addition to her radio career, Yee began to save money, 
invest in real estate, and eventually launch a juice bar, a coffee shop, and several other businesses in her community. People are starting to really pay attention. You get the number one spot. Um, Mm -hmm. How does that, achieving that number one position, change your career? Man, The Breakfast Club has done so much for me. Just, I remember even starting that show and us feeling like we had to go out all the time. We had to do all these different things. We were, I mean, staying up all night, going straight from like events to the breakfast club in the morning, maybe stopping at the coffee shop to get something to eat in between real quick. Um, And we had to start to take better care of ourselves. You know, just being in that spot and starting to think about not burning yourself out and not doing too much, but also at the same time going really hard to make sure that everybody knew we were there. And then we started to get syndicated. We had to go to these other markets to have a presence there as well. And I remember I used to be like, okay, you know, if I got booked for something and got $500, I was so excited. And then my price went up to $1,000. And then I was like, I'm not leaving unless it's $2,000, you know? And then the price just continued to go up and up and up. And I just remember feeling like, damn, these are things that I never thought would happen. Not only am I making money in my salary, but outside of that, it's really helping me all around just to get my finances together. And that's when I really realized that I had to start thinking about when it's time to retire, that I had to start thinking about home ownership, that I had to start thinking about businesses outside of what it is that I do. I have this platform. And you have to be more responsible too, I believe. That's how I started to feel. People are listening and you're having such an influence on their lives that you really have to be careful what it is that you say. Uh, And that means being responsible in what stories you're reporting and how you're reporting them. You know, I think with media, you can report a story and make people shift how they think depending on how you present it. And so I felt this way bigger sense of responsibility for my community just because I knew so many people were paying attention. You know, I think about when you were doing the Shape 45 show, you know, it's in a closed environment on Sirius. Obviously, they have a national audience and, and, and it was large, but it was before social media. So there wasn't mm-hmm. that global reach after every single interview. You go to the Breakfast Club and all of a sudden there's inordinate scrutiny on every question being asked, every answer being given. How did that feel? I mean, it was different. I think Sirius was different because it's a subscription-based platform. So... It's a little older, excuse older because of that. You have to have a credit card in order to be able to get serious. It was a lot of truck drivers, really male driven. You can get away with a lot more. And I think now, you know, you have the FCC, you have people complaining about things if you do anything or say anything wrong, people getting offended if, you know, something offends them. And so, and they have the right to do that. And so it might water it down a little at times, But I also feel like with FM radio, it is always going to be different because you have to think about sponsors. We didn't have that as serious. There was no advertisers and sponsors that you really had to worry about. So you have to think about, you know, reporting stories. You have to think about sponsors. You have to think about parents going to work with their kids in the car, listening. And, you know, sometimes you kind of push that out of your head, like they might have to change the station if their kids are in the car and it's Freaky Friday (laughs) and we're doing a topic. And so, but I also feel like social media makes everybody grow up a little more too. 
because your kids are going to be exposed to a lot of things. They're seeing so much, you know, with television, with streaming services, with social media, that it's hard to even feel like you have to stay away from certain things because they're going to see it anyway. And so I think a big story is a big story no matter what. Was there ever anything that you felt like crossed the line? Yeah, definitely. There's things that didn't sit right with me. And I'm sure any one of them will tell you that because we're all three different individuals. And I think my line might not be as far as, you know, Charlemagne's line is. And so, you know, there's times that it's been bad where I've been like, I just, you know, and there might be things I did that bothered him. But I think as all of us being different individuals, like, I just never want people to feel like, people sometimes affiliate all of us. If one person says something, it's all of us. And so you could even say, I don't agree with that, but it's still all of us because we're a collective on a show and people don't always look at you as an individual. Well, he said that, but she didn't agree or she said that and he did disagree with her. Some people might get those nuances, but a lot of people will just be like, the Breakfast Club did this. And you're like, I didn't agree with that. And so it makes it hard because as, as they do want us all to have our separate personalities and there's certain things they know that I'm not gonna go that far. And that's just how I am though in my personal life in general. I'm not really a very antagonistic type of person. I'm more nurturing, I would say. So you start initially getting your feet wet in real estate and that's the beginning of your sort of more entrepreneurial endeavors. You started by buying your own house. The first house I bought was a two family. And what was the thinking behind that? I wanted to make sure that I did that because I wanted some income coming in. You know, no matter what, I always have the mindset, especially when I bought that first house. I mean, it, it had me on zero after everything was said and done. And I was always like, what if something happens? And, you know, I'm not making money like that. I need to make sure that I can afford this. And so I made sure it was so affordable for me that even if something happened, I was still, I was like, okay, so if something happens, I have a tenant, then I could get a roommate and then I won't have to pay any rent and then I'll be okay. And I really had that whole process um, of thought behind me. And then, so that's how I bought that first house. It was a two family. What is the worst part of being uh, a landlord? <laughs> the worst part of being a landlord is, I guess, it hasn't been that bad for me, but at the time when you have to get somebody to move out, that's not easy when you have to be like, okay, you know, lease is up because tenants do have a lot of rights. Mm -hmm. And so that's a difficult thing. And um, I remember I was gonna buy a property during a pandemic and there was a tenant living there. And my, my realtor was like, even though I got a great deal, it was 13 people that bid on this property and I got it. And the only catch was we wanted it delivered vacant, but they were like, we can't, well, you have to get the person to move out that's living upstairs. And my landlord was like, honestly, Angela, I don't think you should do that. She was like, this is, could be something that drags on for years. And we're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. And it could really, she was like, I've seen this go horrible for people that have bought properties and for years, and you won't even be able to work on the house if she doesn't let you, you know? And she was like, I wouldn't advise it. And so we ended up not doing it. So once you get that property clicking and you start seeing passive income, where do your sort of ambitions start to move from there? So then I started investing in property in Detroit. It was affordable. And I think that's something that you have to look at for people that are trying to buy their first home. Even if you can afford to like, or if you're able to pick up and move someplace else that's affordable, that's not a bad idea. 
it's a city that I'm familiar with from having worked with you know Eminem and and Paul for so long, and. I think it has a lot of history. Even if you look at the airport and how amazing their airport is, you can tell a place that is being, uh, that's a hub just by the airport. But even seeing Dan Gilbert, all the stuff that he's doing in the city, seeing the Pistons move back downtown, Google has a headquarters there, you know, StockX is based out of Detroit, just all of those amazing things happening and you pay attention to that. You see the Whole Foods comes to Midtown. It lets you know that this is a city that is, you know, on the rise, but also wanting to be part of something that it's getting gentrified. But you would you want to see like black people investing, too, and people who actually care about residents, you know, who live there. And so that was important to me also, just because Detroit is such a black city. And I love that. And I love the, the history of Motown and the Motor City and all of that. And so. To me, it was just important for me to be involved in that too and to kind of shed more light on it. As someone who would be intimidated to go buy property out in a city that they don't live in, or, or even if I'm slightly familiar with it, what is step one to start acquiring property there? I think, um, well, I wouldn't buy something if I didn't know people there. So I do know a lot of people there. And so that helped me also. So I think doing your research, talking to people, but also then seeing if you could back it up with research online. And then looking at, I mean, there's so many um, resources like a Redfin, a Zillow, a Trulia, a Realtor.com, all of those resources that you have available. So you can kind of see how things trend. But sometimes that's not so accurate. And that's why you really have to go there. I would never buy something if I didn't go and see it and, you know, and make sure I do my research like that. Because I'm not the type of person to just do something online. The first one I did, I did it right away like that just because it was an opportunity that came up quickly and the house was $25,000 in Boston Edison. And it's a beautiful neighborhood. You know, the house is like, you know, maybe like 3,000 square feet, but it was a full gut rehab. But I was like, this is definitely like a beautiful, amazing house. And I can take my time with this $25,000. I can just buy it outright and not have to worry about it. And so the only thing about Detroit is that even though I didn't buy that house in the land bank, you still have to deal with the land bank when you're rehabbing a property. And I understand it in a way because they wanna make sure that you're actually not buying something and holding it and it's not a blight in the neighborhood. And so they give you a certain amount of time you have to check in as you're rehabbing. And so, you know, if it takes longer than they give you, it's fine as long as they can see that you're making some type of progress on it. You want to make sure that investors aren't just being like, I'm going to just buy this house and sit on it and not do anything to it and then try to sell it later when the prices go up. Yeah. You want people to actually do the work. And so, you know, that part was was tough. But, you know, I think you can get it in compliance. You can't just buy it. And I think that's not fair also to people that are in those neighborhoods like somebody bought this house and they're not doing anything with it. It just looks terrible and it makes the value go down. So that's the only thing I would say is that you just have to make sure that you're ready to spend that money that it's gonna cost to rehab. Do you have a plan in terms of what your expectation is for what you're gonna get on the flip for that? Um, you know, the market is so up and down and especially in Detroit. I'm glad that this, the one that I just sold, I didn't sell earlier because I would not have gotten anywhere near that amount. The price went up so much and it's starting to dip a little bit. I never know how much I have to invest. And to be honest, like after the pandemic, the prices of these properties have gone up a lot. I did not know that it was going to go up that much that quickly. And so it's starting to come back down now, but I sold it definitely at a good time. And so when you see everybody, there's less inventory and people really want to buy. And especially in that neighborhood, it's amazing. I definitely was like, we got to sell this right now. 
And I think it's seasonal too. There's different times of the year where houses, I think the winter is kind of a slower time. And so you pay attention to things like that too. But the cost of, you know, all of these goods went up tremendously too, even just buying the wood and buying different things during the pandemic, that got a lot more expensive. And so it's just a give and take. I feel like with real estate, everything that can, can, can go wrong, you have to expect that it might go wrong. And so you always account for that. So anything I feel like I can get, I always lowball. Like, okay, maybe I'll get 300,000 for this house, you know, but we ended up getting 350. That's what the asking price was. Or it might be, um, you feel like, okay, it's gonna cost 100,000 to rehab. Well, that's gonna be 150. <laughs> so I always overestimate what it's gonna be. How did you get into opening the juice bar and then the coffee shop? So the juice bar I opened in conjunction with Styles P when I first did it. And that was just because for myself, like I had started juicing because I was just feeling like I wasn't healthy. When we started the breakfast club, waking up at four o'clock in the morning, every single day, and then not wanting to eat breakfast, I was just kind of running on empty and it didn't feel good and healthy to me. And so I started juicing. But when I first started juicing, I was going to like, there are certain juice bars that it's really like pureed. It's a lot of sugar. It's like orange juice or apple juice in there and not real apples and real oranges. And so I wanted to make sure that mine was truly healthy and only those fruits, whole fruits and vegetables. And so, I, was, I live in Brooklyn, I live in Bed-Stuy, and on the weekend I would go running in the park, but I could never find a juice bar that was what I wanted it to be, you know, without the puree. And so I saw Styles P had his juices for life. So I went to the one in Yonkers, I checked it out, and then my boy Killer Touch was like, yo, Styles P has a video, you should just run up on him and tell him that you wanna do his juice bar, cause he knew I wanted to do it. So I went to Styles' juice bar, he gave me his blessing to find a location, I found the location. I actually got the location from um, Santi's husband, Trouble Andrew. He was looking for spaces for his studio to paint. And he saw that one, but it wasn't, it was too big, I think, for him. So he was like, oh, you should go see this one. And that's the one I ended up getting. And I mean, did you have to do a total crash course in uh, <laughs> managing a juice bar? And yeah, I'm still like, you know, crash coursing in that because things have changed a lot. But in the beginning, even in the, the build-out part, I was there all the time, making sure everything was good. In the beginning, I was there a lot, but what I did learn was you have to have great management more than anything. You know, there were periods of time when we didn't have great managers or we didn't even have a manager at all. And that is definitely not going to make a successful business. And so for anybody out there, I know that I can't be there all the time. And you don't want to have to be. Like to be a great business owner, you don't want to have to be there micromanaging everything. You want to make sure you have things in place, people and systems in place that will make that easier for you so that you can go on and start the next business and so that you can also enjoy what it is that you have going on. I know for me, I travel a lot, obviously I have the radio show, so it's not like I can be there every day micromanaging. That's why a, a great manager is important. And so Styles is a partner in this business. Um, did his infrastructure in terms of like supply chain to like fruits and vegetables and all that kind of stuff help to get sort of streamline that process of getting off the ground? Yeah, so we use the same companies that they use like to get a lot of our stuff. We've started doing things a little bit differently as far as our supplies, because things have gotten so expensive. And so we're trying to do things to streamline that process. And so that's been really effective for me because I think you always have to be checking on prices of things. You know, the place that you were getting something for, it might get priced at the price of honey, like went up six times, you know? And so it's so expensive. 
And so now we've had to find someplace else to get that from. And a lot of times, like I might do things like that on my own just because you should be looking at things. Even when it comes to real estate, you should be looking at your insurance all the time and seeing if you have the best insurance possible. And every year, you know, check around and see what it is to see if you can get a better deal. Because there's so many ways that you can save money if you just spend a little bit of time getting it done. When the opportunity to develop her own solo show presented itself, Yi had no choice but to take it. After discussing it with her co-host, The Breakfast Club announced Yi's departure from the show and revealed that her next chapter in radio would be her own program, Way Up with Angela Yi. At what point did it become clear to you that your time at The Breakfast Club was coming to an end? I think I knew for a few years now that I wanted to have my own show. And I had been talking about it and I had been saying, look, I want to, you know, get my own show. It's probably been for about maybe, I would say like the past four or five years. Really? That long? Yeah, that I knew I wanted to do that. And the first thing I did was talk about having like my own show, maybe lip service there at night and maybe something that would be a weekend show. In my head, I was like, I'll start doing this and then I can transition into just having my own show, period. And I thought it would be a nighttime show. And so that was what was in my head. But, you know, earlier this year, my boss came to me and wanted to have a sit down conversation. I had no idea what it was about. And that's when she told me, look, we want to give you your own show. We think that you deserve it. And like, honestly, she she got all teary eyed and I was like, I couldn't believe it because I did not expect it. And at first, the expectation, you know, before this conversation was that I would stay on The Breakfast Club and they would give me something of my own and kind of like I had it as serious. But she was like, no, you don't have to stay on The Breakfast Club. We want to develop this around you and have it be a nationally syndicated show that will come on after The Breakfast Club. And so. I just, it felt like a dream when I was walking out of there. You know, we sat down. I have a picture of the two of us at the table um, when we talked about it. And I just remember like, kind of like floating out of there, like, wow, is this really gonna happen? You know, and this was months ago. And so these are things that like take a long time. And I, I was just really anxious for the news to come out and to be able to get started working on it. You know, my boss actually told them I was out of town. <laughs> She told them first, like they had a meeting, but she let me know. She was like, look, we're going to have this meeting um, and I'll let them know. And I think that's probably the best way to do it. So they could ask whatever questions that they had and not feel weird with me being there. Okay. Yeah. You know, and then the next day I came in and we had another meeting with all of us after everybody knew about it, where we discussed it. And then we also discussed what we would do on the air. And then after that is when we made the announcement on the air. So tell me, what can fans expect from the Angela Yee show? Um, so it's called Way Up with Angela Yee. And I thought it was, you know, I went through a lot of different names. Names always sound so corny too. Like when you're trying to come up with something, you're like, this is corny. But I really like this one just because I feel like it does describe me. I feel like for myself, I'm still like, I always think about like on the way up, how are you treating people? Are you treating people well? And I feel like in my trajectory in my career, I've always been really good to people, no matter what position they're in. And I feel confident in knowing that. I'm like, I don't question the fact that I've been a good, decent human being. And also people will tell me like, Angela, you do too much for people. Like you're too nice. 
And I'm glad that I'm that way. And so that's kind of like me being on the way up. And I still feel like there's a long way for me to go and things that I want to accomplish. And then, you know, I thought it was just a lot of different uh, un double entendres, maybe triple entendres. But I also feel like getting up early in the morning every day, that was a killer. But I also feel like, yeah, by that time, I can be way up. Yep. You know, that's about the time I'm awake. Like by 10 o'clock, we're way up by now. And everybody should be, you know, in the groove of doing whatever it is that they're doing. Because I'm so sluggish in the morning. It's so hard. And then, um, yeah, so, and then I also love the acronym Way Up with Angela Yee because it's Wu Wei. So it's W-U-W-A-Y. So I think about like Wu-Tang and how I got my start in this career. And so I just like, like all of it, everything about it. And I feel like it's just, you know, that's what we're all trying to do is be way up and financially and in our careers and in our lives, just get to that point where we feel like we're way up. And I'm definitely way up. Even though I'm not all the way there, I'm way up. What are the last things on the bucket list? I mean, I think about like the day that I'll be able to retire. I want to make sure that I definitely want to start a fund to help other businesses, small black owned businesses. That's important to me. And so that's, I feel like the next thing that I'm trying to do in my life, I want to be able to have some real estate um, out of the country. I really want to get like a great- For, for personal leisure or just for, or for renting and- I think both. Okay. I want something that I could rent out. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to buy something that I wouldn't want to stay at too, you know? So I want to get something that I love and it might be something that at first I rent out and then maybe get something else that's just for personal use and the other one is just a rental. But I think like, you know, I always start it off and then expand, but I would love to buy something that I use, but that I also rent out. And then once that starts making money, buy something that's just for me. And so I wanna be able to do that. And really my first love has always been writing. And so for me, ideally in a world where after all of this, I wanna be able to be comfortable in my house in the islands you know, writing at my own leisure. And I do think I'll always do radio because maybe one day as I get older, I want to do something like a nighttime show that's, you know, a little sexier, older type of situation. You now have your hands in so many different businesses and so many different types of businesses. What yields the most satisfying moments for you today? Um, the most satisfying moment, I think that I do love I love like my coffee shop, you know, and trying to expand that and the possibilities of what I could do in the world of coffee too. That's important to me. And so being in stores, opening more shops, making it a franchise, that's gonna be the next thing that I tackle. I think with the juice bar, what I like about it is what it brings to the community and how it has changed people's lives. You know, I have friends that never juice and like my friend Tashara, I brought her to the juice bar and now she done bought a blender and she's making stuff at home. And to see is this right across the street from a school to see the kids coming in there and their parents are like so happy that their kids are excited to get a juice. And so I think the juice bar brings me a lot of satisfaction because I know during the pandemic, it helped a lot of people. And I know that people who have never, ever done this before come to the juice bar to do that. And it, it has I have literally seen people whose health has changed, has changed just from coming there. They've told me like I started coming to your juice bar and now. You know, my blood pressure is back to normal. Or look at my skin, I've lost weight. I don't, you know, there's a lot of things I don't have. One guy's like, this woman in my building has cancer. Every day I bring her a juice. 
and it's what she looks forward to every day. And so I think anything that you can do that changes people's lives is so important. And that's why I love that. Has there ever been a point in your career where you felt like this could all go away? I don't think I ever felt like this could all go away. And part of that is because I've always felt like if this doesn't work, something else will. It's because of what I've done, like the seeds that I've planted. I know I could always call up Paul Rosenberg and be like, because he knows me mm -hmm. and he knows you know, how hard I work. I know that I could call up Julie Greenwald. I know there's so many people that I could make that phone call. I know I could tell Kevin Lyles, I wanna come work, you know, that how can we make this happen? I know there's so many different people that I've worked with that have seen my work ethic and see what I've been able to do and that will help me, you know? I know that I could talk to my friend Natina, like I know my friends will help me figure it out and I know the people that I've done business with are like, no, nah, Angela's dope, like let's do some more with her just because of what I've planted already. A lot of the relationships that I had gotten from working at Wu-Tang, that was my first job, I took with me when it was time for me to start doing marketing. And so I was able to get close to a lot of different people. I worked for different clothing lines. And that is, you know, the relationships, the, the ability to write, because I think writing is one of the most important abilities you can have no matter what you want to do in life. No matter where you want to work, if you can write a great email, if you can write a great proposal, if you can do a deck, those are such important skills that you'll always be able to do anything. Angela Yee's story is one of hard work, perseverance, and staying true to oneself in an industry that celebrates overnight success and clout chasing. Yee also teaches us the importance of diversification and how living in multiple lanes can lead to multiple income streams and how that stable foundation can give you the ability to take bigger risks. From radio to real estate, from juice to coffee, Angela Yee has built an impressive portfolio by leaning into her own interests, pushing herself to stay learning, and never being intimidated by a challenge. Big thanks to our sponsors at Shopify. If you're looking to start your own online store, check out shopify.com ideas and become your own boss today. Thank you for listening to the Idea Generation Podcast. My name's Noah Callahan-Bever, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>